We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organised chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com slash squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting a Intelligence Squared 2. That's Notion.com slash squared. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. Today on the podcast, Albert Reed, whose role as managing director of Condé Nast Britain, overseeing titles such as Vogue, GQ, Vanity Fair and more, means he's well-placed to think about ideas that are aspirational, creative and most of all, imaginative. It's the topic of his recent book, The Imagination Muscle. In it, Reed suggests that the imagination is something to be trained, developed and treasured over a lifetime. Joining him in conversation on this episode episode is Alice Thompson, columnist and interviewer at The Times. If you'd like to hear this episode ad-free and enjoy the full-length version, you can support our mission to foster honest debate and compelling conversations by heading over to intelligencesquared.com slash membership or subscribe to our channel on Apple. Let's join Alice Thompson in conversation with Albert Reed. Hi, Albert. I am going to introduce Albert first, and he is Managing Director of Condé Nast Britain and has launched and led businesses for the company in the UK, Europe and Asia. He's a former journalist. I have to say I have known him for quite a long time, and I've always massively admired his ability to be both a journalist and to be a business person. He's one of the few people who's managed to cross over from one side to the other very efficiently and effectively. Um, So I think he's probably the ideal person to have written this book because he is both creative, imaginative, uh, and he is extremely adept at business. Um, He has written for The Spectator, The TLS, The Times and The Telegraph, as well as uh, running Condé Nast, effectively. And his book, The Imagination Muscle, is really sort of fascinating for me because my family were scientists. Um, His grandfather actually um, is the same. He was a very uh, well-known art historian, but they both came from very simple backgrounds. So it's interesting for both our families that they were very creative and they were inspirational, but they came from very, very different. Um, my, My family and his family came from very different backgrounds where there hadn't been much creativity before. Probably they were farmers in Albert's case, and in my case, um, they were, actually, they were booksellers. But I thought we'd start with the fact that ever since Romantics, as you say in your book, we have been obsessed by the imagination. Um, It's always the opposite of sort of pedestrian, dull, obvious, and plodding. The word imagination is something that you want to be associated with. So why did you decide to write the book, Albert? And what was your inspiration? 
Well, it, my inspiration came from two different directions. I was long time ago. I was I was reading a book. I was following the one of the messages of my book. One of the mantras I have is read what no one else is reading. And I was reading a book called The Secret Language of Film by this French scriptwriter who I was rather into at the time called Jean Claude Carrière, and he was a he's something of a legend in France, not so well known here. And he worked with Louis Bunuel, the Spanish film director, and did other films like The Unbearable Lightness of Being and The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie and, and The Diary of a Chambermaid. And he, he was a very brilliant man. And he wrote this book about his work with, with Bunuel. And he said in this book, there was a passage in his memoirs which really caught my attention and stayed with me, which was at the end of each day of shooting, they would shooting a film, they would retire to their hotel and they had this, this, this regular habit, which was... And he writes in his book, as for training the imagination, the muscle which makes the essential breakthroughs, we did this daily exercise. And what they would do is they'd retreat to their rooms. And for half an hour, they would, they would come up with a story. It was like a discipline that they wanted to do in order to, as, as he says, to keep the imagination on its toes, to force itself, to arouse itself at the very hour when the imagination is tailing off. So I was very interested in this idea of the, of the imagination as being something you can work at, something you can be attentive to, and something that... That, that actually is there for us to, to, to make use of if, if we choose to do so. And if we don't choose to do so, we, we neglect it at our peril. Uh, so that, that, that was always a, something that's been at the back of my mind for probably 20 years or so, this idea of the imagination, something we can work at. And really, I've never, I've rarely seen it described as such. And then in my, the second angle of approach really is in my day job at Condé Nast, where I work in a creative business where, we work with, I work with editors and writers and, and art directors and commercial people, all of whom need to convey ideas. And really, if your business is, an, is creating ideas, you've got to secure the supply of ideas. And in the same way that we have to secure the supply of paper, it feels to me that ideas are an essential commodity of, of, of a media business like, like Condé Nast. So, I've, so the two subjects really came together. And about two, two and a half years ago, I... I, I, I they came together in this, in this book, and this is something that I worked on and have delivered and written over the last in the last two and a half years. Yes, but what's, what I found so fascinating about the book was this sense that we feel that imagination, creativity just happens, and that it's spontaneous, it's instinctive, and it's intangible. But what you're very much saying is it isn't that it actually it does need and require effort. And I think there is that sense that geniuses are just sort of created, aren't they, without having to do very much work. And the idea of work is not really what the imagination is, which is about more sort of daydreaming and unconsciousness. And well, I think ideas require effort. They require persistence. Mm. And I think if you're working in a creative business, you have to set, set an expectation of ideas. And if you look at the great business leaders of the past and the great business leaders of the present, there's a kind of expectation, there's a kind of energy which, which is there. If, if you think of Edison, you know, he would had his own quota of one small idea a week and a major invention every six months. And on one day, he wrote down 112 ideas and he filed about 1,000 patents in his life. And then you look today at people like Bezos, Bezos and you know, he's, he, his line is that if you're not having ideas, if you're not failing enough, you're not succeeding, you're not going to be inventing at a rate that's going to move the needle. And he and Steve Jobs and, and, and their like were a very, very able to have bad ideas. They're very capable of failing. They believe in failure as a, as a by, byproduct of success. And in my work, I, I, I just think you've got, to keep, you've got to keep thinking. You've got to keep, you've got to keep your ideas fresh. And you have to 
I think as particularly as you get on in life and if you spend a couple of decades in a business and if you're rising to a position of leadership, there's a sense that you need to feel right. You need to think you've got to this position because you've always been right or you've generally been right. And ego becomes the great enemy. And you think you're making a linear pass on the path to wisdom but, but as you rise through the company. But actually, the enlightened leader should really see that the younger people, the other people around them have ideas which may be better than their ideas. So I think this idea of humility, this idea of, of, of being able to be contradicted, of being able to, to hear ideas that may make you feel uncomfortable is, is also a very important part of, of leadership, of part of business. And the rewards to, for people in their, you know, in their 40s and 50s tend to go to those not who are always right, but those who have the greatest networks, those who have the widest breadth of interests, those who are reading what no one else is reading, or are at least confident enough, confident enough to test their own assumptions. And do you think that we are running out of ideas? Because some people think that we are, that we've become less creative, or do you actually, I mean, you're, you're in this extraordinarily creative industry, do you actually think that in some ways we're having to push the boundaries more and that we are producing just a very different sort of creativity now? I think it's very hard to, to I, I think we are running out of ideas. I think there's an idea deficit and it's very hard to prove and it's very hard to quantify and it's very hard to point at something that isn't there. But there are certain, and I've been looking at this a lot, even since I wrote the book, that, that there are certain indicators which would which would indicate that, that ideas are becoming harder to come by. And there's a, stand, there's a Stanford study which says that to sustain growth in GDP per person, the amount of research effort has to double every 13 years in order to offset the difficulty of finding new ideas. And there's another test called the Torrance test, which measures creativity, which has pointed at creativity falling since, 1990, since 1990, and there's been a steady and persistent decline. And then if you look at things like productivity, there's, productivity has basically went up, went up and up and up until 2008, and then it's kind of flatlined. And you have to ask yourself why. There's a, there's a, there's a very good... Um, so there's a story that is a well-known one, which is comparing ourselves to 100 years ago. And if you fell asleep in 1885, 1895, and woke up in 1923, you'd find the world was completely transformed. You'd, you'd wake up and find there was electricity, there was aeroplanes, there was telephones, recorded music, skyscrapers, hamburgers, Vogue magazine. All these things appeared, you know, the cardboard boxes. The world was completely transformed. Whereas if you fell asleep in 1995, and woke up in 2023. If you woke up today, you know, sure, you'd find the internet had made a lot of difference, a lot of difference to a lot of parts of our lives, and there have been huge advances in gene editing and vaccines, and we have electric cars. But generally speaking, the the the, the pace of change has slowed. We've we've become more of an incrementalist type of world, I think, where things have we've got taller skyscrapers. You know, the zip is still the zip. Certain things have changed. Certain things haven't really changed. I came here on the central line. That's still very much as it was when I was a child. And, you know, the plane, the, the, the train journey to York is still the train journey to York as it was. And so we're seeing this, this deficit in ideas, I think, this deficit and this lack of ambition, which is what I want to point out in the book, where we should be more imaginative. We should be more ambitious in our, in our aims. And I think also this is true of, of the artistic world. If you look at cinema, if you look at the top grossing films of 2022, you could almost, I think every single one of them is a remake. You've got Avatar, you've got Top Gun, you've got Jurassic World, you've got Puss in Boots, you've got Doctor Strange. These are all titles of films which could have been there 10, 20 years ago. And there are lots of other examples. Music is, is, is there's fascinating research around chord changes, that, that number, harmonic 
key changes in music gradually reducing over time. So there are these there are these underlying indicators, which if you put them all together, do point at something I think quite troubling or something that we should, we should at least be focused on and we should at least be paying attention to and wondering what to do about it. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It is worrying because I think people assume that the pace of life has sped up, that that's what you, you feel. You feel that ideas and, and yes. communication, that it all feels so different. That um, I think it's quite interesting to be able to fling it back and say, actually, you know what, we, we've actually, we're slowing down in a way. And do you think that's partly because we're distracted, that we have too many other distractions, that we don't have time, as you say, to carve out these moments just to think? I um, do. I think... Um, I think we have, we, we, I write about in the book, in the Imagination Muscle, about this thing called the spaces in between, these, mm. these moments in the day when we daydream or we ponder. You know, we think of Isaac Newton sitting in the garden, his mind absentmindedly wandering towards an apple falling from a tree. Or we think of, uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's an example of um, uh, a mathematician, um, who, I've suddenly forgotten his name, who gets on a bus and has a, has a brilliant, brilliant breakthrough in, in his in his mind of souls, a mathematical problem. Of, of, but it's only one. It's only one. getting on the bus and, and and having 
having this this moment of of sort of absent-mindedness. You think of you know Archimedes in the bath, and you think of all these examples where it is really this 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 declutching from life, where 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 ideas happen, and these spaces in between, where you're waiting for a bus or waiting for a kettle to boil, or instead now we just we check our phones. You know, we're standing in a queue, and our hand irresistibly uh, uh, you know, leans towards the pocket to pick out the mobile phone to check the emails or to check Twitter. And that, I think, is a, is a problem. I think, I think we've become overly reliant on, mm. on incoming data. And overstimulated in some ways. Rather and overstimulated, than exactly. Stimulated. Yes. Um, when you're talking about, you know, someone like Coleridge is a great example, actually, because uh, he often makes excuses in his poetry about why he did something or how. He likes, he likes to assume that, that he hasn't made any effort, that it's all effortless and... He's just innately extraordinarily creative. Do you think that some people are that some geniuses are just innate and that that they don't yes. very much? I think. I mean, I, what I say in the book is, I, we're not all starting from the same starting line. We're not all. You know, we're all. My 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 line is that is that we can all be imaginative. We can all exert our imagination muscle. We can all have ideas and be creative and find enormous fulfilment and satisfaction and happiness and 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 really the sensation of being alive. In, in in exercising our imaginations. But I don't think that means that we're all going to be geniuses. Nor, but but what's very important is, is we shouldn't just, because we're not going to be geniuses, we shouldn't then just subcontract imagining to, to the professionals. We shouldn't see we shouldn't see imagining as something that, oh well I'm not a great playwright or a great poet like Coleridge, therefore I should leave it to other people. I, my, 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 my view is, my, my line in the book is that, we, we, that we've lost something in, in the societies of, of old. People, everyone will partake in imaginative activity. They, they sing or dance around a campfire or they tell poems to each other. And that is something we've lost. And, and, I, and I find it in a way a bit strange that we've lost it because we don't think of this in, with physical exercise. We don't think, oh, there are people who can run 100 meters faster than I can, therefore I won't bother running. So there's, there's no... That sort of equivalence it doesn't seem to apply to to to, to imaginative activity. And with someone like Coleridge, he, you know, he, I know he, he gave this impression, but he did a lot of things which are do do provoke thought. You know, he walked incessantly. You know, he was like Wordsworth, his friend. He, they, they, he was walking for miles and miles. He, they went on three hundred mile walks mm. across Scotland, and he'd set off in a storm twenty miles to post a letter or buy a trout for dinner. So he was. Even if he didn't, I think he did know it. But I, th- I think I think he, he wasn't doing it in a way to, in a, in a kind of direct transactional way. But walking, you know, has, is such a fruitful form of imaginative activity, and, and I and I write a lot about it in the book. And you know, then he then we, you know, there's a famous story of Kublai Khan where he we, he yeah. had this vision coming out of this opiate-induced um, semi-illness where the work exactly in Pollock, exactly. And um, interrupted by an annoying visitor, so he lost half of it in his mind. But anyway, um, so he was, I think, making uses of the tools of 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 provoking the imagination into into more into, and stimulating the imagine, imagination into more activity. And you talk about how you can start using your imagination muscle, which I think is what some people want to know is how you start doing it. And you use a commonplace book or journal, which actually people used to have a lot, and Victorians in particular were always scribbling down ideas or drawing little sketches. So yes. have you got one on you? Can we see one or can you? I have this at home when I'm in the office. What is it like? <laughs> well, I have what lots it look of, like? I have, well, it looks like a real mess. I mean, it's, um, I got, like, I got, what can I show you here? So just lots of this sort of thing, you know, just lots of notes and lists and ticks mm. and little drawings and little lists of numbers. And so it's, but this isn't my proper one because I have one at, 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 um, 
at, at home. But what I do is I read a book and I underline things and I, and I take notes and and I, I gradually accumulate this this body of knowledge on paper. And I'm, I'm a big believer in paper and books as opposed to cloud-based storage, which I think... And do you have a pen as well? That Like Maggie O'Farrell has one pen. She writes all her books. I, have a, I use this, this, it's called a Stabilo Sensor, but I have lots of them. <laughs> It's not a special, not, not a special pen, but the, the, the but the idea of the, of reading has really changed enormously since the first books were read in the you know in the, in the, in the Renaissance era. In those days, they would read a number of books at the same time, and, and they would have and they would reread books, and they and they would note and they'd scribble in the margins. There was no sense of the book being this sort of sanctified entity which you couldn't touch. They were scribbling away endlessly at it, and this idea of Reading books from different parts of, the, of your life and different disciplines, I think, was a very, very powerful way of seeing across bridges. Seeing, what, you know, reading a book about science over here and a book about art over there, and you'd have ideas which would, which would sort of coalesce between the two, between the two disciplines. And then also you'd have ideas which, you know, if you have a, if you have a bad memory, then you can write something down and forget. If you don't write something down, you'll have forgotten about it in, in a week. So this idea of an idea that you might have had in February suddenly making sense in the light of something you've written down in June. And I, and I like this idea of this sort of accumulative sort of sedimentary sort of um, body of knowledge that you build up. And, and, I, and I think it's, you know, it's, it's, it takes, takes a bit of effort, but it, it's, it's something that I believe strongly in. And it certainly was a, b- a big feature of 17th century life and, and, and beyond, an 18th century life and the Enlightenment um, period. So I think we should bring it back. And the, the idea of reading weeks, people like Bill Gates go off on reading holidays. They take with them a whole body of books, again, from different backgrounds. And they, it's really by reading them all together in the same period of concentrated time that interesting things happen. I mean, that's what I find extraordinary is every time I interview someone like Bill Gates or... Um, Sergey Brin, they never stop reading. So that yeah. you're looking at these people who are, you know, either trying to introduce you to Facebook or to, you know, Google or to um, TikTok or any of those. They they themselves read and they get their children to read, and their children are not on phones, and their children um, aren't really using devices very much. They are all yes. reading, so they understand the importance of that for ideas, don't they? And, and they do, and of course, the original, the original commonplace bookkeeper, although well, he wouldn't have called it that, was, was Leonardo da Vinci. You know, he, he has this extraordinary legacy of notebooks, which consist of, you know, little doodles of seashells and, and, and cascades of water and women's hair, and the interaction between the two of them. And then there's little shopping lists and doodle, little, little observations about the sun not moving. And so he was, was the ultimate, really ultimate keeper of of, of, of a commonplace book. And, and really, he, he knew that also that in the, in the act of drawing or noting, and he says this in his memoirs, in, in, his, in his writings and in his uh, notes, that the act of drawing or noting is really that in the act of doing so, the mind is engaged and thoughts won't always present themselves before the pen is taken up, but often in the act of writing and drawing itself. And it's very different from a diary, isn't it? Because a diary is very internalised. It's what... Yes. And I think that I think it's much more harder to struggle with a diary, isn't it? Really, that actually, you have to be. You know, it's it's much more personal in some ways, whereas this is actually much more outward looking. Yes, and what I've also found is that other people's commonplace books have very little value to one. To, to, to I, I I bought W. H. Auden's commonplace book, which is a big, thick mm. edition, 
and I read it. But actually, what I realized reading it was it's actually the act of the act of doing it is the important thing. It's actually putting it together yourself, which was what makes it valuable. I don't think you can piggyback on other people's commonplaces books. You have to do it yourself. You have to make the effort to do it yourself. And nor do I think that technology, and people may disagree with me on this, uh, has really quite found a better a better version of the book, of the paper book. Because the paper book has an advantage of being very easy. It's there, it's quick. You don't have to recharge the laptop or you don't have to save it on, the, you know, you, it's just there. And it also it reminds you that it's always there on the shelf. So you, it has this sort of tangible, physical presence, which which brings it to the forefront of your mind as opposed to being buried away in some folder. Talking about other catalysts for your imagination, do you think childhood does have an effect? So sometimes a traumatic childhood can or adversity can. Do you think that can inspire it or is it more education or parents? How can you foster that creativity and intelligence um, combined together in a child? I think it's. I think a lot of it comes down to how you educate your children and how how you how you teach them to 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 acquire the tool set of of, of imagining through the the ideas that are contained in the book, you know, which are about about opening your eyes to to new sources. I think the problem with education these days, and I, I want to ask you this question because I know you've thought a lot about this at the Times, but the problem with education, as I as I see it, is is that there's too much to learn. There's so much. You know, in the in the 1800s, you'd have people who were called the last you know the last man to know everything. And now it's impossible to know everything. And so what happens is either you, you could spend three decades trying to learn everything, or you get pushed into these fields of specialism at quite a young age. And so people become doctors, or they become bankers, or they become uh, politicians, or they become you know, whatever it may be. And so you, you lose this ability, which we had in the, in the 18th and 19th century, to, 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 to see across ridges. To see, to, to, you, know, you had people like Humphrey Davy, who would be inventing the incandescent light bulb, and at the same time, editing Wordsworth and Coleridge's lyrical ballads, and this idea of somebody being a scientist and, a, and an editor of a great body of poetry is, is very, very odd to us. And how how we reclaim this, how we get that back into our mindset, is I think one of the great challenges of our age. But I'd like to ask: Can I ask you a question? Yes, yeah. because I know I know you've studied in your brilliant book the effects of childhood on on people's later life. Have you have you seen any common elements that have led to people of great creative genius or great creative achievements. Yes, I think part of it with um, childhoods is that if you have a very difficult or traumatic childhood, it releases you from being normal. So you have to think yeah. in other ways. You're much more likely to take huge risks. Um, and I think that really helps you. I also think that um, you're more desperate, so you're more prepared to look in different ways. You may have spent more time on your own. You don't have your parents telling you what to think, which I find fascinating. Um, and I think in a way it just releases you. Um, on education, there's, I don't know if you know, there's an extraordinary um, new university, which is a new interdisciplinary university, which is run by Ed Files, who I went to, Ed Philo, I went to see um, just three days ago. And they just think about problem solving at their university. They don't actually do individual subjects. They don't learn any specific facts, which I thought was fascinating. Yeah, yeah very interesting. And I wonder, I wonder how that will play out because part of me thinks that is that is the solution. And the, the other thing that I wonder about is is, is, mo is mobile phones and technology and how we get the attention span back for our children. I think that's a great a great challenge of our age is how we get people to focus for long enough on reading Tolstoy. Well, I think really that's why I like this university. They had three children who had all been given a problem for their summer term, and that was it. So they did their maths, their English, their sciences through a specific problem that they had found or identified. And they came up with solutions for it. And I thought that was an, 
an excellent way really of teaching them how to learn because they were having to incorporate it, but they were also being ideas led. And I thought I would employ people like that for the times. I thought it was a great way of doing it. Yes. And you must see that. I mean, offices could do more of that too, couldn't they? That it's how you lay out the offices, what you do. People now are working more from home, but you talk in your book very cogently about how offices can change and respond and how they can provoke more ideas. Yes, I talk about, I mean, first I talk about cities and I talk about, um, and then I connect them to offices. Really, I think the, the qualities of a successful city can to some extent, be replicated in a successful office. I mean, the, the cities that work for me, and really, I think we'd all agree on this, are, are cities where there's an organic um, sort of an organic sense of bumping into each other, of, of imperfect corners, of slightly jumbled up streets. We're all, we're all attracted to the artistic quarters of of Paris, or to you know, the, it's, it was in the in, Rena, in the back streets of, of Renaissance Florence that all the best ideas were had, and in the Souks of medieval Islam that that that, um, that that great thoughts were were had by the collision of people almost literally and the ideas they had and and really I think offices and I think that and on the city front I think we've had an enormous setback in the last hundred years I think the Corbusier um, approach to city planning and the grid system and the zoning system which you see in certain cities like in in, in, in certain cities like the Middle East. Where you have, you know, the media city, you have the energy city and uh, energy zone, and the, the banking zone. I think that's a mistake. I think people thrive on the mixing up of people and of ideas and of of uh, artistic versus business versus science versus you know whatever else it may be politics. Um, and when it comes to offices, I think I mean I certainly think that people need to be together. I don't really believe in the working from home mentality for an off for a company that's trying to do new things it's trying to take risks it's trying to grow it's trying to be different and trying to trying to be you know a force you have to be together now i think the, the other mistake that the corbusian effect in a way flowed through to this idea that offices should all be the same and we still see this in most of our offices we have open plan offices we have layers layer, lines and lines of desks and we have this this notion that that if we're all in the same room we're, we're all going to we're all going to, you know, share ideas and speak to each other. And but actually, I think it's more nuanced than that. I think the the um, the the truth is that we have different. You know, some of us are extroverts and some of us are introverts. And if you're an introvert, I think the open plan office is a nightmare. Mm-hmm. And I think it's very very difficult. And there's, I, I I I quoted some research in the book about actually the the level of interactions in an open plan office goes down by something mm-hmm. like seventy percent. So really. That doesn't work, and I think what we're what we're discovering is that offices where you have some space to bump into each other, some space where you can be alone, some space where you can eat together. That the I think the consensus is emerging around what an office should look like. And if you look at look at um, Apple Park, Steve Jobs's legacy to office design, you see something on a very grandiose scale, but nonetheless something very interesting around you know curves, having no straight lines, not having more than four floors on an office, and having having this constant ability to, to not only to see each other, but to see outside and to see nature and to see see the world beyond the, the, the office cubicle. And do you think schools could also do more than with cities and before you get into the office when you can teach children more in the same way or maybe have the same sort of group learning? Can, can they inspire? I mean, I think teachers can inspire, but can you actually use some of the architecture of schools as well in the way? Well, I think 
I think my guess is, I mean, my my instinct is that they should follow the same principles. They should, they should be places where flow is built into the, the way mm. that your your regular day and and chance encounters and the serendipitous nature of 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 work and and ideas is is exploited to the max by by the by the way you design a building. So yeah, I do. Mm. And universities, I mean, we've had C.P. Snow wrote about it in the 1950s and you talk about it in your book, but it is extraordinary that the sciences and the arts don't really interact anymore, do they? That we've pulled further and further apart. And we, we yes. have this constant argument, which is played out in the Times the whole time, even today, actually, in a column, which is about, you know, creativity versus STEM. And it's a sort of that STEM can't be creative. And in fact, they both are. And that the idea that one is better than the other, that humanities at one stage is, is more important. Or and, and do you think that's actually... a a misnomer that actually what we should be doing is, is putting everyone together the whole time and mixing it up. And I do, I do. Yes, more. I do. Absolutely. I know what, what, one of the things that I write about is, is the importance of being a beginner in something. And again, this comes back to as life goes on and you become more of an expert in one area, how do you, how do you retain that freshness and that humility and that, that, that flexibility of, of mindset? And what I find fascinating about scientists, and, and again, I'm interested in your view, Alice, is, is if you look at the Nobel Prize winners in science, there's a disproportionate, they have a disproportionate interest in the arts compared to mm -hmm. their peers who, who didn't win Nobel Prizes. And you see people like Alexander Fleming and Richard Feynman, these, these Nobel Prize winners who were also artists. They weren't particularly good artists, mm -hmm. but nonetheless, they were fascinated by art and they exercised their artistic energies. And uh, Fleming was a member of the Chelsea Arts Club. Uh, and, you know, his art was kind of derided. He, he was... He, 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 he was he was not taken seriously as an artist, but but I can't help but think, and the evidence would suggest from this research that their art, their bad art, made them mm. made them great scientists. Mm. And it's this this ability to, to to use your brain and to exercise this part of the brain, which helps you, in some quite difficult to explain, intangible way, see the the fruits of your work in science in in, in a different way, mm. and, to, and to appreciate things, perhaps at an, at an aesthetic level, perhaps at a at a sort of almost a spiritual level, it's a sort of romantic sense of wanting to find the beauty in the world. I think that that comes through in these these scientists and their ability to communicate their ideas. So I, that for me is is a very telling um, piece of piece of research that it would indicate that we need to keep these two sides of our mind working. We need to keep keep our our brains alive in, in both sides of the of, of our thinking, and that's neglected. I think, as you're saying. Well, thank you very much, Albert. And if you haven't read uh, the um, brilliant book that I actually have here, but my daughter has just walked off with because she hasn't read, um, I think you, know. you should, because it, it's, it is just inspirational. I think it makes you think that you can do it too, because quite often you read books and they don't apply to you or you feel that um, you can't be involved. It's not what you can do. And, and it's quite negative or, um, you know, miserable really and this is this is the opposite isn't it that um you know when you that you flex your imagination muscle you're you're doing something that's not going to cost you anything and um isn't going to upset anyone else and um could actually inspire others so i would say that we should all now log off and go and spend half an hour either in the bath or having a walk probably before it gets dark. Um, unless you've got any other ideas out. But what would you be doing tonight? What are you going to do to fire your imagination? Um, well, I, I, like, so I like sitting in a parked car. That was Vladimir Nabokov's um, way of having ideas. So I sometimes go and sit in the car. It's usually at the end of a long car journey, actually. And that, that is an oddly mm. effective way of having ideas. Right. So everyone can now go and sit in their car. Or <laughs> I'm going to go for a run quickly, I think. Um, run. I'm not sure about go. running. 
walking yes. is better than running anyway yes i think in swimming some people can do swimming i can't do swimming but yes. whatever you do go and do something now and um that's the wonderful thing about the imagination is that it doesn't really take very much does it um it it's going to be free it's free uh, and we are quite good at it so i think altogether um it's very positive and is that what you felt when you finished the book that you felt positive i felt very positive yes i feel i felt uplifted and i i i I've, i'm convinced that using the imagination engaging the imagination is the is the source is the the, the the secret of solving and so many other problems around mental health around around physical health mm. it's i think it's the, the third leg in the stool of, of physical and mental health i think if we can if we can build imaginative health i think there's going to be all sorts of ripple effects on society which which would only be for the good and it'll make everybody happier and more alive thanks for listening to intelligence squared this episode was produced by Hannah Kay with editing from Tom Hall. If you'd like to enjoy the full conversation right now, head over to intelligencesquared.com to sign up and become a member. We'd also love to hear your feedback and what you think we should be talking about next. Send us an email or a voice note with your thoughts to podcasts at intelligencesquared.com. And if you'd like to hear more, attend some of our live events or peruse over 20 years of the back catalogue featuring some of the world's great minds, then once again, head over to intelligencesquared.com.